we're, we've been studying the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and we just started the study a couple weeks ago, and the study is called Being the Church. And it's just a look at what it really means to be the church. Sometimes we talk about that language and we think we know what it means. But, you know, the Bible gets to define what the church is, really. Um, we get to define how it's lived out, for better or for worse. But the Bible itself actually lines out guidelines and uh, experiences that the church has had. We are studying 1 Corinthians, which is actually one of the epistles, one of the earliest epistles written to the church. That's just a letter that was written to a local church by the Apostle Paul. And it was a church that he had started in Corinth. And so, there's no mystery in this where he was writing to a local church about what God was doing and in them and what God is doing in them. And so we've talked for a couple weeks now, just the introductory paragraphs, honestly. But now we're going to get into some of the harder things that Paul's trying to instruct the church in, some correction that's going to come our way. And so uh, we're going to pray, as we always do, that God would give us wisdom through his word and that we would experience that wisdom together, that somehow we could know more fully what it means to be a believer in Jesus and part of his body that is the church. Uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us now to come into your presence again with your word that your divine revelation is given to us through scripture. We thank you so much that this uh, is no ordinary book, but a book that uh, communicates divine truth uh, to us. And we thank you, Father, that it's been preserved for us, but then even more so that you do not leave us on our own to understand it. Your word says that if we ask you for wisdom, you will grant it. That it we, and Father, we ask today that we would have minds that would understand, that we'd have hearts that would believe, that we'd have lives that would live differently because we've encountered you, the living God. And that only happens by your revelation through your Holy Spirit. So would you reveal your word to us today? Would you help those of us who are here maybe today and, and have a hard time believing that it's anything but a book that you would break through in a different way? Um, that, 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 our, that at least for our sake, we would come with an open mind to what you might have for us that you would show us through your word. And then, Father, for the work that you do, that only you can do, we give you thanks and praise as your disciples, those who are learning from you. Would you teach us today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this, I think it's like the third week in the series. We're going to lose track here, but uh, this, this uh, week we're talking about the church united, right? So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he has a bunch of things to say, but one of the earliest things he gets into here in the book of Corinthians is divisions in the church. And so I want to ask you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. If you brought a Bible, you can probably find where that's at. It's going to be after the Gospels to the right. I guess if you're flipping to the left, you know how that works. If you don't have a Bible, they should be on the end of the chair rows in front of you, or maybe one right around you. You can grab a Bible. I would encourage you to read the word for yourself, right? I would encourage you not just to take someone speaking in front of you like me at their word without looking at the word yourself and seeing if it's true. That's an important principle in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you would want to see for yourself the things that he's revealing. And so you want to look at it with me. It's on page 793 if you use one of our Bibles in the end of the chair rows. And we're just going to jump into it. The way it's going to work is we're going to cover like nine, nine verses this morning, not a whole bunch, but we're going to just read what scriptures say. <laughs> That's all we're going to do this morning, okay? So here's Paul then. He's written some things about the church and what, all the gifts that God has given the church. And in verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree with one another so that there will be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And so Paul has written to the church, and he said, there's this great big thing that God's doing through the church, and he's given you all these gifts, every gift that you could possibly want. And he says, now I appeal to you, I urge to you, I urge you. So one way you can think about this is Paul is begging the church. His church, he started in Corinth. He's begging them for this one thing. Will you do this one thing? And it's to have no divisions among you. There is something that I think we can intuit from this text that is in his plea, and that's this. That as the church, we have a tendency toward division. 
we have a tendency toward division. Um, you might say as humans, we have a tendency toward division, right? It's the same thing. Tribalism, kind of breaking off our little sex. But then Paul talking to the church is like, he's got this big vision for what the church is. And he's like, but you do, you know, do me a favor and have no divisions among you. He kind of breaks out some ways that he should have no divisions among you. He says that we would agree in everything that we speak or say. <laughs> and I think, Paul, that's easy. Just agree in everything, church, and you'll be fine. Like, wh- how is that even possible? Why would that even be a thing? I, he says, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you may agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. That, that agree with one another means that everything you say would be in unity, that you would speak in unity there. And I'm like, well, Paul, how is that possible? The key word, and this is why we share communion together, this is why we celebrate the Lord's table, is right there in the second, the clause, the first clause there, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul believes that the church ought to have unity in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the bedrock principle, the foundation of the entire operation is in the name of Jesus Christ. And the, and the way the word breaks down there is it doesn't just mean in the name of Jesus, like, yes, I believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus, so we believe in Jesus. That's not exactly what it means. It means by him or via the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is asking the church in Corinth to be united, to have no divisions among them. How? By the name of Jesus Christ. This then becomes the bedrock, the foundation of the entire church. In his name, we ought to be united. And Paul makes that case. He says, hey, let there be no divisions among you. Um, Green, everything you speak via the name of Jesus Christ. That's how we could agree with everything that we would say together. By his name. And his appeal here reveals that it was not currently true in the church in Corinth. And, and many of us will be critical, as I said last week, about the state of the church and how church is going, how churches are, you know, and everyone, everyone has an opinion about the church, right? Just, if you don't believe me, watch the news. Everyone has an opinion about the church, right? Those inside, those outside, everyone all over the world has opinions about the church. But the truth is that this early in church history, one of the first church plants, Paul's writing back to them that quickly and saying, okay, you need to be reconciled. You need to be united church that quickly. And so you can imagine um, this book was written in the first century to the churches. So this is one of the earliest, these letters are some of the earliest um, writings, um, even predating the gospels in their writing back to the churches because the gospel is being preached, right? It's being proclaimed uh, verbally, but then it's being reinforced with these letters back to the church. No, 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 this is what it's about because people are being divisive. We have a tendency to be divisive. We have a tendency to separate. We have a tendency to see differences. And I mentioned to you a minute ago that not only is this true of us as the church, but also as people. There's been a lot of study of people. And what we notice is more differences and similarities. We have a hard time seeing how we're the same in a whole bunch of ways that we easily see how we're different. <laughs> Seems how this works. And so Paul is not encouraged by this in the church. He's like, no, no, no. You should see your sameness in the name of Jesus Christ. See, all of a sudden, Paul's going to speak to some new identity that the church has in its Lord. Look at what the word says. Just catch it. How? In the name of our Lord. That's our ruler or our master or our boss, Jesus Christ. We have unity in his name. That's the commonality that we all share together. And already in Corinth, this wasn't true. His desire was not just that there would be no, no divisions, but there would be unity in the church. And so thinking about that for a minute, I just want to ask, how do you see um, the church divided today? I just want you to think a minute, take a minute, and I want you to think about how you see the church divided. What divisions are there? There's, there's divisions over different doctrinal teachings. There's differences over um, denominations. There's differences over theology. There's differences in many, many ways. 
right? What divisions do you see in the church? There's divisions just in families. There's divisions in churches because I don't want to go with that person. But here's my second question for you. How do you and I contribute to those divisions ourselves? And how do we stop that? How can we get to this place where Paul is begging the early church that we ought not be divided but united? And I know you're probably thinking with me because I'm pretty cynical about this stuff that oh, I don't know how it can be done. The word says there's one way and it's in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the unity of the church is in his name. But then in the second part of that same verse, he says this, let there no be no divisions among you. And he says this, and that, so there's two things, that you would be perfectly united in mind and thought. So that you would all say the same thing, that would be unity, but that you would be perfectly united in, where is it at? In mind and thought. That's Paul's desire. Perfectly united instead. That's what the word says. So instead of being divided, be united in mind and thought. What does it mean to be united? Now, I want to give you two illustrations that come straight from the scriptures this morning about what it means to be united. And the, the first is this, that you have... You are being knit together. Actually, that's not exactly correct because what the word says is because instead you have been knit together. Now, I got to be honest with you. As a guy, I don't understand a lot about knitting. Apparently, you use two little things and you move them around and stuff comes out and clothes happen. I don't know. Blankets. I mean, I've seen that. Maybe when I was a little kid, anybody crochet? When I was a little kid, I did crochet for a minute. I mean, I did, right? I just was fascinated with the looping thing, but I, can't, I don't know how to do that now even. I've seen people set and just, and this things come out. Matter of fact, um, Sarah Walker was playing banjo this morning and she, she actually did a, um, her master, some of her master's work on, on knitting, right? There's this whole thing you can do. But what does that look like? And, and I'm just gonna give you this illustration first. It doesn't affect me as a guy, it doesn't, right? But, but you're being hooked together, right? You've already been hooked together. The, Paul's making a great claim about the church and that you've been hooked together in the name of Jesus Christ. That you've been looped to the next person. You've been hooked in your spot. You've been, you've been made to belong there. And this is where the second one comes up for me because you could just knit together is beautiful and eloquent, but it doesn't really connect. But this does for me, you've been fit together. You've been fit together. And that means that like the parts, like a puzzle, they just snap in. You find your spot, you belong. You, you're, you're in it with the rest of the church. This kind of unity, this being fit together is part of what it means to belong to Jesus. You see, it's not that we're like belonging to Jesus out there somewhere on our own and we're just complete, but there's this idea that he's making us complete together. And Paul's writing for the cause, this cause to the church in Corinth, that you've been knit together or you're being fit together. Um, the way I always think about being fit is this is symbiosis, right? It's these two pieces that were fundamentally meant to connect, and when they're not connected, they're incomplete. This is the model we get for the church. This is what Paul's writing back and saying, right? There's divisions among you because you're not allowing God to do what he wants to do, which is to make you complete together, to cause you to depend upon one another, um, to cause you to be bound together. I love this illustration because this knitting and fitting is exactly emblematic of what, it, what God says about creation itself, <laughs> what, what the word of God says about you it says that you were knit together, right? You were formed in the same way that our fleshly body was formed, knit together. Paul's making the case that the church is formed. It's knit together. It's connected. It's created by God, just like us. And so we have this kind of, this kind of 
symmetry between our fleshly experience and the experience in the church being made, created, knit together. And so we ought to recognize that, fit together. In what ways? He says two ways. In, in the same mind, that's understanding or intellect or reasoning. That's partly why we do these conversations. That's partly why we do Bible studies, that we could flesh out what it means to be a Christian, that we could examine the text and, and think deeply about what it means. So we can flesh them out of one mind, having one mind together, and the second way, that we have the same thought, and that's a little different than thinking, but it's like purpose, opinion, or decisions that would be united. If you've done, spent any time around churches, you know there's been all kinds, and, and I'm not casting stones here because we are part of that problem, but there's been all kinds of divisions over silly decisions. That, that from the outside, people go, that makes no sense. You can't even agree on these very basic things. And that's too often because we're not living our lives as God intended, but we're living it, the word would say, from the flesh instead of from the spirit, right? So what does it mean, though? I want to make one more connection about what this kind of one-mindedness means in, in Christ Jesus' name, what it looks like. And this comes from Luke 24, 45. And this is the same word, and Jesus, it says, the word says this about Jesus. He opened their minds to understand, like that he gave them the ability to, to get it, that it, it's revelation to us, that Jesus opened their minds to understand in Luke 24, 45. You want to look that up. And so this is, that's where we get the same context of what it means to be of the same mind or then also the same decision-making. And so my next question is this. What does it mean that Paul believes the church is being or has been knit or fit together? What does that really mean for the church? Like part of this, our goal here is to flesh out what it actually looks like to be part of God's household or part of his church, part of his ecclesia, the called out ones. And I think it means at least two things here. I think it means that you are not in, you are not saved without a purpose. Because the church is those who are believing, and those who are believing are believing for a purpose in this life, right? Now we know we get eternity, we get forgiveness of our sins, we get peace with God, and that's awesome. But the truth is that we are saved with a purpose for this life. It means that you're not here by accident in the body of Christ. It means that you belong here. Each of you are here as part of God's intention, listen to me, for his church. What does that mean? That means that you need something from another believer. You do. I do, right? But it also means, and this might be harder for us to get our heads around, that we are needed. That someone else needs us to be here for their sake, for their faith. This isn't, I've said it before, this isn't about growing churches. It's about growing, it's about growing into the church of Jesus Christ. That we need other people. That's the way God designed us. And that we are needed by other people. This is his intention for the church. And so it's, it's kind of remarkable we even have to say these words to each other. But I think we've come to a place that we think, no, I don't really need anybody. I'm pretty good. All by myself. But Paul writes back to the church in Corinth. And he says, no, you're being, you have been, as I said, perfectly united in mind and thought. You have been knit together or fit together. There's an intentionality in God's design in that reality. And so we have the opportunity then to be fit in our spot. Now, I have to say to you, I get it. It's uncomfortable. It gets really close, you know? It gets really intimate sometimes. It gets really awkward and we harm and we hurt one another. Hopefully not on purpose, but it happens because we're trying to do something that requires God's spirit to do, which is become his people, to become his people. And so this is Paul's plea. I beg you to have no divisions among you, have perfect unity in mind and in thought in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's his plea, but why? And here it comes in verse 11. My brothers, 
Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So here's the problem with unity. There's quarrels. This means like there's strife or contention. You're just being heated with each other, right? You're getting all, uh, you know, frustrated. I follow, you know, it's verse 12. What I mean is this. And so Paul gives a very specific example in the church in Corinth. He says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And he goes, the, the fundamental problem in, your, in this particular manifestation of strife, and there are many, by the way, is that people began to think more of who they were following than what God was doing through the church. And, th- and that, I guess I would summarize that, prob- that problem is that too often we follow people in the church. And, and again, I, I'm just amazed at the relevance of Scripture over the generations because this book is 2,000 years old, and you still see it today. The same problem you saw in Corinth in the first century. Paul had gone through and started a church, and he's like, hey, praise the Lord, share the gospel, right? Believe, share communion, worship together, do life together. And then he's writing back and saying, here's the problem. You keep saying, and I love the way the word reads. It says, I am with Paul, or I am of Paul, or I am Paul. (laughs) It's a branding issue. Um, I want to mention these three dudes real quick to you. You can see them right in there, right? But you got Paul himself being appealed to as the real leader of the church. And then you've got another dude named Apollos. And if you study the Bible at all, you know that Apollos was a gifted speaker, a gifted communicator, but didn't have the full understanding of the gospel. He was really good at talking, but he, was, he didn't have the full gospel understanding until he was given it by a couple of, of um, uh, house church people. Like, whatever you call it. Like, they were just like leaders in a church, and they took him aside, like gracefully, and they said, Apollos, um, there's some stuff you don't understand yet. And then he fully understood the gospel. And so you have Paul, the one who started the church. You have Apollos, who's a really gifted speaker, communicator, and who does know the gospel. And you got this third dude, Cephas. Who's Cephas? Yeah, I love that. It's another name for Peter. He's, a, he's using this other name that they use for Peter. He's like, and then so you say, I follow Peter. The, you know, the other, the other disciple. So you've got Paul, you've got Apollos, and you've got Peter. And then I think there's no accident the way Paul runs these out. He does himself first. Some of you say, you follow me. Why is that? Because people are like, yeah, Paul, we follow you, and you're writing us a letter. Like, I bet you they're ready for the attaboy from Paul. I started that church. I know what that church is about, and I'm Paul. Listen to me. Be like me, right? But then he says, some of you follow Apollos. And then the Paul people are like, why are you writing about those people? And the Paul's people are like, that's right. We're Apollos. And then there's a third group. Some of you follow Cephas. And the Cephas people in the back room are like, yeah, we're still here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And some say, I follow Christ, or I am Christ. That's the anointing, the anointed, the Messiah, the Lord, the one that he just appealed in their name. And you must imagine that for all the, the vigor, and all the passion, the disagreements that had happened to that point, it must have just taken some wind out of the sails to say, I wonder if there was anyone that was still there appealing that I am of Christ in the church. See, we have a tendency to follow men. That's the meaning humans, not just men meaning biological men, but meaning people. We have a tendency to, to look at our leaders and say, I, I'm with that guy. The problem that we've confessed repeatedly here at Family Bible Church is if you're following that guy, that guy will fail you. That guy's going to do it wrong. That guy's going to make mistakes. And so our goal as the Church of Jesus Christ is to be in that last group and say, I follow Christ. I belong to Christ. This is the great and glorious gospel of Jesus. And this, is, this deals with so many of the uh, concerns about the state of the church. But the reality is that God does not fail his people. He doesn't. We talked about that last time. God is faithful. And Paul believes in God's faithfulness to his church. 
And so then we don't bind ourselves to a person, but we bind ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ. We don't bind ourselves to any human. We bind ourselves to Jesus Christ as his church. So that's interesting. And and by the way, and this is a good instruction, I think, from the word. You can see in the way Paul writes, I know he's divinely inspired, I get that, but you can see that he has thought deeply about this issue. He could have written back and just started to parse out these issues, you know, about these different people claiming different, but he, he sees the problem is not that they aren't following him or aren't following Apollos or aren't following Cephas, it's that they aren't following Christ. This is his case. This is his discernment, and it's very well done. Here's two places I see this being a problem, and I want to, again, just try to make this practical theology for us, right? Two places, I want you to hear this this morning, where this, this creates problems in our own faith life. It can hinder believers. And the first is this. It can cause us to doubt what God has done. If we think we follow a person and we experience the truth of the gospel, we experience Christ ourselves, and then that person fails us, it can cause us to doubt what God has done. I remember having conversations with people, and I, I've had a short pastorate. I've only, I've only been a pastor for maybe 11 years or so, but I've had people in my life who've come and said, you know, I was baptized I believe the gospel, but later on, that pastor is found in some egregious sin. And I'm like, okay. And they go, does that count? And I have to ask the question, who was at work? What was being done? If the Lord's at work, then yes, of course, because his work is eternal. His work is, is standing. And if, if, you don't, if, if we don't understand that, we can begin to hang, hang our eternity on human constructs, like on a person. So I can only go to the church where the pastor is perfect, and I can only go to the church where this person never sends the rest of their life, and then my hope is false. Because that's not how the gospel works. We pin all of our hopes on Jesus Christ. The intention is that we are his. The second way, so that's the first, we can doubt the good things that God has done. And I pray, church, that you would never doubt the good things that God has done in your life. I mean, I would just pray that that would never happen, that you would believe the gospel and believe it was gospel work in your life because God is faithful. The second way I see this hindering Christians sometimes is it keeps us from obeying what God has clearly called us to do. I often talk to people and they say, you know, I would do that, but so-and-so is such-and-such. It's always some other problem with some other person. It's never me and my obedience problem, right? Or, or the, no one's supporting me in this. No one's, listen, if God is calling you to do it, he is faithful to have it done. And so we can live into this truth of who God is, being faithful as part of his body of Christ, how I've seen this work out. Well, you know, I would go down to that church over there, but they don't, they don't have this. They don't do that, right? Um, some ministry or some passion or some belief. And usually it's passion-based because, you know, sometimes our ministry stuff is about our needs being met. But sometimes it's like there's a spirit. I would go there, but there's, this, there's not that spirit of the power of the gospel over there. And I'm like, then why don't you go and participate with the power of the gospel over there? Like if you see the problem outside of the church, why do we stand outside and criticize instead of getting in there and living out what God has gifted and called us to do as a gift, as a blessing, a manifestation for the church? Why wouldn't we do that? I hear that sometimes people call me. And they're like, I'm going to leave my church. I'm looking for another church. And I, I talk that through with people. Well, why are you leaving? Well, because this, that, and the other thing has happened. Well, why aren't you staying to rectify that? Don't you believe in the unity of the gospel? Don't you believe that God has called us to be his church? I know there's times you can't do it, but we ought not to be the first thing out the door when there's a little bit of disagreement or discord. We ought to struggle for the gospel together not obeying what God has called us, you, me, to do. Second manifestation of how following people can cause us to not be faithful to God. 
God desires, I believe, that you would be obedient to him, that's true, as part of his church, as part of his church, as part of what he wants done for other people. He invites us into that kind of life. So then Paul does a great job of undressing these arguments because even though they've heard, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, this may not have convinced them yet. And then he asks three questions that are quite poignant in nature. And it comes in verse 13. Paul writes to the church, is Christ divided? Like, is he divided himself? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so he's asking these dressed down questions about what happened in your life. What was motivating you for the gospel? The truth is that we are united in Christ. I was, by the way, I was gonna make that a pop quiz question today. I was gonna ask you all to guess the blank. I forgot to do that. I would hope that we would know that, that if there's anything we're united in, it's in Christ himself. That if you're talking to someone else who's a believer and you're having disagreements about anything, that you would push back to the fundamental issue of do you believe in Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? Because that becomes the formation, the foundation of our faith in his name. And you might say, well, that's not enough because people can be dishonest. If you talk to people long enough, it will, they will reveal to you what they believe about Jesus. This issue about Christ being the cornerstone of the church will become the dividing stone. It will become the thing that separates. And you can sense it. You can know it in conversation. Paul says, he asks um, emphatically, is Christ divided? The default answer is what? Yes. Huh? No. You guys are like, I'm not sure. No. I, he's begging the question. Is Christ divided? No. How, how about this one? This one's a little easier. Um, was Paul uh, crucified for you? No. <laughs> That's a little easier. Uh, were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. You know, and just like the early church, we have to answer the same way. Paul asks these three questions, and, he, and he's laying out a foundation for faith in Jesus Christ. He's laying out the truth of who the gospel is about, and it's about Jesus himself. Is Christ divided? No, of course not. Um, he, Paul confronts those who would claim himself. And, and if, if there was an opportunity that Paul wanted to kind of take advantage, this would be the chance to do it. He would say, yeah, those of you who are, who, like, who, who are after me, you're doing it right, and those other people are doing it wrong. But he doesn't. He says, no, is Christ divided? No way. He's also most sympathetic to those who would be claiming to belong to Paul because he wants them to belong to Christ himself. His desire is not that they would follow him, but they would follow Jesus. They'd be obedient to him. He juxtaposes himself with Christ. And this is a great leadership lesson for all of us who are believing in Christ. It would push people to not believe in us, but believe in Jesus. How? There's two ways, particularly, that we are united in Christ that he lays out here. And the first is this, that we are united in crucifixion. And I want to take just a minute to talk to you about this. But in Christ's crucifixion, in Christ's crucifixion all of our sin was nailed to the tree. And I want us to understand that, that in his crucifixion, all our sin was nailed to the tree. There was nothing left undone. In, I want, we hang a cross on a wall. We put a cross on our neck. I have a cross on this ring. But I want us to recognize that in that cross, all our sin is paid for. That's what it means. And Paul claims that this is unity in Christ, that we are with him in this way. And, in this, and, and I want to ask a question about that, which is this. Do you know that Jesus died to bring you peace with God? Do you know that? Or do you know that um, Christ died to forgive your sin. Like we have to reckon with that. That he died to forgive my sin. 
that in crucifixion, I'm united because I deserve to be crucified. I deserve to be cast out. I deserve to be punished because I'm the rebel and I'm the liar and I'm the thief. But in crucifixion, we're united with him. That's the first unique way. And then the second unique way is found in verse 13. We're united in baptism. In baptism, this means the, uh, the actual act of water baptism, what I mean here, not baptism in the Holy Spirit. We're united in him. And I just want to, we talked about it before, but there's this, there's this reality that we die to ourselves and we're raised a new person. It's, a, it's an image of what's happening with us. The, what, the exchange, the great exchange has happened. That we no longer belong to ourselves, but rather we belong to Christ himself. At Family Bible Church, when we do baptisms, we actually ask people to confess that. Do you forsake your sin and claim Christ and believe he forgave all of your sin? Yes or no? Yeah, I do. Do you promise to follow him the rest of your life with his help? Yes, I do. That's it. I believe he died for my sin. I'm going to follow my life with his help. I need him to do it. Being baptized, dying to ourselves, being raised to life practically. Have you taken that step of faith in your life? Have you been baptized in Jesus' name? And I know for some this is a contentious issue. They say, well, do we have to be baptized in Jesus' name? My question is, why would you not be baptized in Jesus' name? What is it about your ego, your pride, your I am with that you are not willing to submit to baptism? That you're not willing to say this isn't about me or the church or the pastor. This is about God and what God has done. Have you taken the step to be baptized? Have you taken the step to unite your future with this? Here's the last thing today then. So we have this unity in Christ. We're going to run through a little bit of what Paul says here, by the way, on this. 13, 14. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you. He starts to go through a list, except for Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say that you were baptized into my name. Because Paul goes, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. So you can't be confused about this issue. Because I was preaching the gospel. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember who I baptized or anyone else. But then in verse 17, he gets to the point. Because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, to evangelize, the word says there. Not with human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's going, it doesn't matter how eloquent the proclamation is. The proclamation is the same. Christ died for you. He came to bring peace between you and God. You're, you, that was, you were enemies before this. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's the question we should ask. How could it be emptied as power if it's about something else? If your faith is about who you follow, it's not about Jesus on the cross, and the cross has no power. If your faith isn't about the sacrifice he gave on your behalf, it's about someone else, not about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that died that we might be free. And if your cross isn't about the hope of resurrection and this eternal life with him, then the cross is emptied of his power for the future. But listen to what Paul says in 18. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's foolishness. And I just want to end here with this idea that the truth is that the gospel we preach, that you are such a sinner that you would need to be saved by God, God's self, is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul says. There's no way you can say it that won't sound crazy to the world. There's no way you can go out and proclaim that truth without people looking at you askew and going, uh-huh, sure, right? It's foolishness, Paul says. To who? And this is terrifying. It's foolishness to those being destroyed. That's what the word says. Those being obliterated. And so when you have someone in front of you, and I just want to encourage you in this, who is overtly rejecting the gospel, we ought to be more grieved and have more pity for that person than anyone else we've ever met in our entire lives because they're rejecting the very salvation of God, calling it foolishness. And Paul says here, that marks them as someone who's perishing. It marks them. For us, it means there's no way no matter where you get to with a person in their life story, all you can do is say, Jesus died to forgive your sin. 
believe the good news. Talk to our students today about your future. All you can do is say, your future is in Christ Jesus. Believe the good news. Times are going great. All you can do is say, believe the gospel. It's good news. When things are going horribly wrong, believe the gospel. It's good news. Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ puts all things in perspective, but it makes us fools. I tell you what, church, the problem is some of us don't want to be fools. When we thought well of, want people to respect us, to honor us, to go look how smart and wise they are. But the word says that it looks like foolishness outside, but that's not the end of the story. Because here it is, church. It's the power of God for those being saved. That's why we offer it. What else do we have? It's the very power of God. So when we're talking to that person, we really care, really love them. You know what we have to do? Overcome our fear of foolishness and just proclaim the power of God. You can agree with a whole bunch of things wrong with the world and say, and yet Christ died to forgive all these things. The truth is that as I go about in my life, and I'm sure you do this in your life, and you hear people's stories, you can grieve with them. You can agree it's broken. You can lament the state of the world, but you can't be without hope because the gospel is hope. And so in the middle of that conversation, we ought to be able to say to them, and yet, do you know how much God loves you? Do you know that he hasn't abandoned you? I've had people say to me in the past, where's God? Where's this great God that loves me so much? And we can say, why do you think we're here? The church, the presence, the manifestation of God's grace to people, a proclamation of truth in a world is dying to hear it. We can hear these stories empathetically, identify with them, and proclaim the gospel hope. Here's the question, last question today. Who in your life needs to hear the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who here, needs, who here knows someone who needs to hear the foolishness of the gospel because without it, there is no way forward. Here's the truth, church. It's no joke. It's no joke. Paul calls us to be united in this one thing, the great and powerful gospel of Jesus. I'm just gonna pray that God would use us this week as he would see fit. And we have one final song, we'll get out of here today. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel and what we've been brought to believe. Father, I feel compelled to thank you again for the faithful fools who came before to preach the simple gospel to us that we could be set free of sin. Father, for the one that would come to me and that would me time and again as I, as I pushed back and kicked and lamented that no, God loves you. For the ones in our lives who would challenge us to explore truth for ourselves, to read the scriptures, to talk to God, and to listen for the answers, to hear and to know, to believe and to belong. We give you thanks and praise. And Father, I'm going to pray a prayer of boldness that in the week to come, if there's people in our lives that need to hear this, that we would be willing to be fools for you. Not fools for the sake of being fools, because some of us are good at that anyway, Father, but fools for the gospel. We proclaim the great and powerful truth, because without you, there's no hope. Oh, Lord, if the world is right, the world has no hope. But Father, we know you, and we know what you brought us in Jesus Christ. May your hope spring eternal through your church. Be glorified as we continue to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.